Well, good morning again. It's good to see, sing that last Keith Green song. Just, um, those are songs that I listened to when I was uh, a young Christian. And for some of you, it's brand new, but for some of us, those songs go way back. And, uh, it's a good reminder of just our uh, first love that we have while we're young believers. Well, um, last Sunday we made a major blunder, a major oversight on the part of the leaders of the church. Uh, we sent out an email trying to correct that error. It was uh, Joe and Elaine's last Sunday with us, and no one remembered. Right? It's all your fault. You guys, <laughs> you guys should know, right? At least help the elders by reminding us or something. But you know, we realized, like Sunday night, that was the last Sunday that Joe and Elaine would be with us. So um, if you didn't say goodbye, then um, shame on you, okay? And maybe send them an email or send them a picture of yourselves and say goodbye. Uh, we sent them off Thursday, uh, late afternoon, early evening. And what a joy to just um, send Joe and Elaine back, the three of them now, back to check. And um, dear brother and sister in Christ, just uh, sincere faith. Um, uh, they have so much to say, but, you know, just good servants of Christ and let's be let's do our part in praying for them let's do our part in interceding on their behalf uh, let's not forget the Smiths who are laboring in a very difficult country for the gospel of Christ the gospel that saved us the gospel that is our home the gospel that we're proclaiming here at home let us not forget uh, our soldiers fellow soldiers who are in the battle lines overseas for uh, the message of the cross. Uh, to that end as well, uh, let's also pray for our short-term missions candidates for uh, Czech Republic this summer. If you're considering, please pray and uh, let Mr. Dale Shim know. And those of you who came out to the luncheon with Joe and Elaine two Sundays ago, <coughs> we thank God for you. We're praying. The elders and pastors are are considering our options, and we'll be contacting you soon. Another thing last Sunday, my wife was telling me on our way out after everything was over, over I said, James, uh, you need to explain your jokes. You need to set up the context of your jokes because when you're talking about short shorts, most people had no idea what you're talking about, and they're envisioning you in short shorts. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? It's just, so it's like, James... And not everybody follows the Lakers. They had no idea Lakers wore short shorts past Sunday. Really? People don't watch the Lakers? I was like, then what, are they, what do they do? And they, they've misunderstand, misunderstood like 50% of my sermons, or at least 50% of my illustrations and jokes. So I know what I have to do. Everyone, you have to follow the Lakers. Right. If you're not following the Lakers, then how am I going to explain the Bible to you? So, to all the men, tell your wives, it's for the Lord. It's for the gospel, right? Wives or women, it's optional. You could always ask your husbands, right? 1 Corinthians 14. If you have any questions, go home and ask your husbands. If you don't understand, like a sports illustration, ask your husbands. But extra credit if you do watch Lakers, right? And it's not enough just to watch the Lakers, but like to cheer for them, to be behind them. Okay, I'm serious. All right, Second Timothy chapter 1, 
verse 8 today, but let's walk through verses 3 through 7 briefly together. Verses 3 through 7 together. Remember verse 3, we're shocked to find that the Apostle Paul, this is his last letter to his son in the faith, his last letter period. He is in prison in Rome, about to be executed, and he's in a dungeon. Everyone has forsaken him, even his closest co-workers. He is abandoned. Nobody really personally cares for him. He writes to his dear son in the faith, and we're shocked to find that after his initial introduction in this epistle, the first word that comes out of his mouth is thanksgiving, gratitude. Gratitude have I, thanksgiving have I. His heart is filled with joy, gratitude, contentment, thanksgiving. He gives us three reasons why he has thanksgiving in his heart. Because he has immersed himself in intercessory prayer. As we sang in that chorus, it's hard to see when our eyes are on us. We have clear sight when our eyes are on Christ. And our, when our eyes are on other believers in their trials and their difficulties. So when Paul was petitioning on behalf of Timothy, praying for Timothy, caused him great joy. Caused him to be thankful to God for Timothy's salvation his maturity, and his commitment to Christ's mission of saving the lost in this world. So we discover how intercessory prayer is in fact a gift. It is better to give than to receive. It is greater blessing to pray for someone than to have someone pray for you. A greater source of sanctification, intercessory prayer. Second reason Paul is filled with thanks is he remembers Timothy's tears, though alone, he calls to mind Timothy's love for him. And we know firsthand how the love of a fellow believer is a source of such encouragement to each of us. It is not enough for us just to come to church and be part of the community of believers. It's not enough for us to attend all the meetings. It's not enough for us to participate in all the activities. What empowers and encourages us, grants us endurance, grants us thanksgiving in our faith, is to know that there's a relationship that we have with a fellow believer that's based on love. Our love for them and their love for us. So Paul, the memory of Timothy's personal love for him, caused him to give thanks. The third reason for Paul's thanksgiving in this prison cell is the knowledge, his intimate knowledge of Timothy's sincere, genuine unhypocritical faith. He first saw that in his grandmother and his mom, Eunice and Lois, Lois and Eunice, and now Paul was confident it was in Timothy as well. And we see that in our experience as well, do we not? That when we, when we are privileged to know someone with sincere faith and we hear their testimonies of their sufferings for Christ, their sacrifice for the Lord, their obedience. We hear about these little victories that God has granted them to have. Isn't that a source of incredible thanksgiving in our hearts? Whether it's a fellow believer or someone you're ministering to, someone that's ministering to you, we somehow know or hear of how they're obeying Christ. It challenges us. It humbles us. It... um 
excites us. Grants us thanksgiving. So Paul, he's, he can count so many who have hypocritical faith, disingenuous faith. You know, that faith is confined to words only. Men who profess such dear devotion to Christ and to Paul, but now that he's in prison, <coughs> they're all gone. By Gilles, Hermogenes, these men, supposed loyal, faithful believers are, are gone. Demas deserted him because he loved the world. So hypocritical believers are a source of much heartache and disappointment, much discouragement. On the other side, just one person who has sincere faith can be a source of uh, thanksgiving to a spiritual leader. So these are all means of grace that Paul was engaged in in the prison cell. He was not a passive prisoner. Though his hands were tied, his heart was engaged, his mind was active, his faith was powerful. And so he was able to rise above his circumstances and be filled with thanksgiving. In light of his sincere faith, Paul gives Timothy this exhortation to remind, a reminder. Verse 6, For this reason, because of your sincere faith, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Do not neglect your ministry, the charis of God, the stewardship that God had given to Timothy to be an ambassador of the Apostle Paul, to be an emissary, to be a spokesperson of the Apostle Paul, exerting authority over various local churches. Do not neglect this stewardship. Instead of neglecting it, fan it into flame. Devote yourself to it wholeheartedly. Run to the front line. Engage yourself fully in what God has called you to do, your purpose for your life, fan it into flame. And one thing that hinders Paul and all of us from doing this, pursuing our call in life, is fear. We talked about that last week. That is not the spirit that God has given to us. God has given to us not a spirit of fear, a spirit of doubt, anxiety, but a spirit of dunamis, dynamite, of endurance. A spirit of agape, love. Love for God, love for others. God has given us a small s spirit, the mindset, the perspective, the intestinal convictions to uh, sober judgment, right? self-control, Sophron, the idea not so much of physical discipline, but the idea of mental discipline. The wisdom that takes truth from our minds and, we, and gives them the wisdom where the capacity to live out that wisdom in their daily life. That is the spirit given to Timothy and to all of us. <coughs> so Paul exhorts Timothy, to, reminds him of that, and reminds all of us. How do we receive power, love, and self-discipline by walking in the Spirit. If your endurance is weak, or if you easily quit, your obedience is lacking, your strength is ebbing, it's because you're not walking in the Spirit. You're not in the Word. You're not abiding in Christ. You're not trusting in the Lord. If you find your first love for God is... um, Stepping away, your emotional affections towards God, heart affections towards God is lacking. 
If your love for the church is lacking, it's because you're not abiding in Christ. You're not trusting God. You're not, you're not believing in Him. You're not in the Word. And if you are lacking sober judgment, you're just not thinking clearly. You're, you're not acting wisely. You're, you're unreasonable. You're not blameless. You're full of blame whether at home, at work, church, ministry, relationships, the only consistent part of all your unfulfilling relationships is you, right? You're the one, right, that's to blame. It's because you're not walking in Christ. You're not being led by the Holy Spirit. So for all of us, we receive these things um, not through Paul's laying out of hands and Timothy laid on someone and that person you know, this line of vicars of Christ and that we find that person to lay hands on us. That's not the way. It's through the Word of God, through Scripture, by the Holy Spirit's words, by being filled with the Holy Spirit, Holy Scriptures in our mind, and walking along, walking in light of the Scriptures. That's how we receive power, love, and self-discipline. Now verse 8. Therefore, now, (coughs) these connecting words are so important. Therefore, Paul's telling Timothy, because God has given to you the spirit of power, love, and sober judgment. Therefore, and Paul gives Timothy five commands. And thus, he's giving us five commands. All these commands apply to us directly. But for our text's sake, we need to look at the five commands Paul gives to Timothy. Now, I'm going to give you a big picture outline. It's like going to go to a mall for shopping. We did that this past Monday to return some gifts. And uh, I was just lost. Certain and I were lost. I can't remember the last time I've been to the mall. And, um, you know, we need to look at that directory, the map of the mall, to get our bearings right. Still, we got lost. Right? You go to Disneyland, and the first thing you do is get a map. So you find out which land to go in first, I guess, right? which ride to go, which route you want to go through Disneyland. Well, that's what we want to do for, for some time, you know, bracketing our study, give you guys briefly a big picture outline of where we'll be going for the next several weeks. And then we're going to go to just a few stores this morning, maybe one store. We'll just go to one land, right? I know you want to go to the whole, go through the whole you know, park, but we can't just go through one part of it. But I'm going to give you the whole thing as a way of... Um, helping us think through uh, this passage. Verses 8 through 18, we find five commands of the Apostle Paul. The first command is, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. NIV has an unfortunate translation. All the other translations agree. I don't know why NIV deviated from that. It is not a verb, it is a noun. Do not be ashamed about the testimony, the testimony. Not, do not be ashamed to testify. So, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. That's the first command. Second commandment, second command is, do not be ashamed also of me, his prisoner. Verse 8 as well, do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Third command is, instead of being ashamed about the testimony about our Lord, And instead of being ashamed of Paul, Christ's prisoner, instead share in suffering for the gospel with Paul. Share in suffering for the gospel with Paul. 
So what is to mark Timothy's ministry is not shame, but suffering with Paul. Suffering shows he's not ashamed of the gospel. And suffering alongside Paul shows that he's not ashamed of the apostle. That's the third command. Now, between commands three and four, Paul presents some incentives, presents some reasons why Timothy must not be ashamed, but share in the sufferings for the gospel. Verse 9 and 10, Timothy, you must not be ashamed of the gospel because God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Because of the gospel itself, you must not be ashamed. God saved us not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Lord, Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He presents the gospel. This is why, Timothy, you must not be ashamed of the gospel. Because of what it is. Do we see that we're saved and we're called not because of our works, <coughs> because of God's undeserved merit that is found in the gospel of Christ, we must not be ashamed. Because of God's sovereignty who chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, God's sovereign election, we must not be ashamed. Because of what the gospel has accomplished, He has saved us, rescued us, we must not be ashamed. Verses 9 and 10 tells us, Paul tells us, he told Timothy why we must not be ashamed of the gospel. Secondly, verses 11 and 12, Paul tells Timothy and us why we must not be ashamed of the apostle. He says, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. I didn't, in a, in a way, volunteer for this. This was not my choice. The fact that I'm being treated as a criminal for heralding God's word, it's it's God's choice. You can't blame God. If you're ashamed of me, you're being ashamed of God because it is God who appointed me. This is why, verse 12, I am suffering as I do. And Timothy, you must not be ashamed of me because I am not ashamed of myself. Though people look upon me with pity, people look down on me, I have no shame being in prison. Because I know whom I believe. And I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He, God is able to guard my soul. So you see the wisdom of Paul. Three commands. Reasons why those, two are to be obe- those three are to be obeyed. And then commands four and five. Commands four and five are ways Timothy is to demonstrate his allegiance to the apostle. Commands 4 and 5 are how Timothy is to demonstrate that he is not ashamed of the apostle. The first way, command 4 is, follow the pattern of sound words of Paul. Follow the pattern of sound words of Paul. (coughs) So, Paul has modeled faithful ministry. If Timothy were to deviate from that, Timothy were to to chuck Paul's philosophy and Paul's model of ministry, Paul's doctrines, then he is being ashamed of the Apostle Paul. The way he shows and proves his love and allegiance to the Apostle is by following the pattern of sound words, the pattern of doctrine that Paul modeled before him. And then fifthly, guarding the deposit. 
entrusted to him by Paul. Paul entrusted Timothy uh, the, the revelation of God, the, the cardinal doctrines, the gospel of Christ. Right? Christ entrusted this to the apostles. The apostles entrusted to the to Timothy and to the Word of God. And Paul is telling Timothy, do not be ashamed of me. Guard what has been given to you as a stewardship. Verses 13 and 14. And then, in the rest of the passage, 15 through 18, Paul gives a few examples. He names two men who are ashamed of Paul. Men who gave into their fears, gave into their um, carnal, base temptations of false shame. He names them because they must have been prominent in the churches of Asia, Phygelus and Hermogenes. These men were most likely Christian leaders, men known for their faith, known for their partnership with Paul and his ministry. And yet, these men were ashamed of the apostle. Not necessarily ashamed of Christ. There is no mention here of them deserting Christ. Verse 15, they turned away from me. A personal desertion. Phygelus and Hermogenes, examples of men who are ashamed of the Apostle Paul. The 16th through 18, he gives an example of one man, Onesiphorus. An example of a man who was not ashamed of the Apostle. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Paul honors this man. When he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and he found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Blesses him. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So Paul affirms and honors Onesiphorus because of his personal allegiance and devotion to the Apostle. This is our big picture map. We will get through half of Command 1 this morning. So... Many weeks in this passage. So first command, verse 8. Do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. We know by the verb form employed here by Paul, that Paul is not insinuating that Timothy was ashamed. Timothy was struggling with fear, struggling with self-doubt, struggling with perhaps neglecting or not giving himself fully to the a work of the ministry. But he was not being ashamed of Christ or Christ's apostle. If Timothy had been thus tempted, Paul would have used the present imperative verb of ashamed. Do not be ashamed. Which forbids the continuance of an action already occurring. But Paul here specifically uses the aorist subjunctive. This is why we take Greek in seminary, right? Right here is why. Right? Without this, I would have no idea, and most of you would not, right? Except for a few of you, right? Paul uses the error, error subjunctive 
with the negative, which forbids the doing of an act not yet begun. Very Greek is a very specific language. So Timothy has not begun to do this. But Paul is a good leader. He's anticipating. A good leader anticipates, right? He's proactive. He's thinking ahead. He's not a react. No, a good leader doesn't react, right? He's proactive. Now, Timothy, Paul has seen this, I think, in Phygelus' eyes. He saw this in Herbogenes' eyes. Shame. He saw this in Demas' eyes. He saw it in many men and women who profess radical faith in Christ, turn away in shame. He knows that societal stigma of being a Christian in late 60 AD is strong. The emotional shame is powerful. So he proactively tells, calls Timothy, prepares him for the temptation that will come. So when that temptation surfaces, Timothy knows better to not yield to the temptation to be ashamed. Not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. It isn't a word, the gospel. It's in a word, Christ himself. So Paul is not the first one to warn uh, believers of this, this false shame that is tied to following Christ, was warned by Christ himself. Mark 8, 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If you're ashamed to follow me in this sinful generation, you're concerned about the opinions of sinful, adulterous men and women who are shameless in their sins, if that is your mindset, then I'll be ashamed of you. You have no part with me. I do not know you. I do not have a relationship with you if you would be ashamed of me, not before honorable people, but before a sinful, adulterous people, you're ashamed of me. I'd be ashamed of you. Luke 9.26 Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed when He comes in His glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. So for Christ, silence is betrayal. Right? Silence is betrayal. Not standing up is betrayal. There is no middle ground. Now, let's dig a little deeper here. Um, why this command? Why this command of not feel shame, embarrassment, disgrace, dishonor. I'll give you a definition of shame. It is a negative emotion caused by an awareness of wrongdoing. In the Bible, the feeling of shame is normally caused by public exposure of one's guilt. Public exposure of one's guilt. This is where shame and guilt are different. Guilt is the emotion that we feel for wrongdoing. But if no one knows about it, there is no shame experienced in our hearts. Shame is experienced when we do something wrong and someone else finds out about it. Then on top of guilt, we feel shame. So before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked, Genesis 2.25, and they felt no shame. No shame. 
after they sinned, Genesis 3.10, they saw God, they hid, they ran away because they were ashamed. That's the key difference. Guilt is individual. Shame is relational. No audience is needed for guilt. Guilt, the guilty person is his own judge. But for shame, the humiliation of shame requires disapproval or ridicule by others. If no one ever learned of our wrongdoing, we would never experience shame. So, in light of that, why this command? I think two key factors come together for this command. Two reasons why Paul gives this command. Two key factors, they have a small snowball effect, (coughs) excuse me, aggregate, cumulative effect that results in shame. The first reason for this command is the society, culture of the New Testament world. The culture of the New Testament world. When we study the Bible, we must understand that this is an ancient document over 2,000 years old, and it was not written in Southern California. Right? It was not written in America, United States. It was written in Middle East, right? in Asia. So we must recognize the cultural chasm that exists between us reading it and the culture of the Bible. Not only identify the chasm that exists, but we must bridge that chasm by understanding the culture of first century um, um, Asia Minor. We find that the first century Asia Minor culture, much like Asian culture today, is uh, they were very hypersensitive to shame. Hypersensitive to shame. And this is where, I don't want to be, you know, but this is where Asians have an advantage. Right? And finally, something Asians have an advantage in, right? We're, we're, we can't jump. We're, we're not, very few of us are very tall or strong. But finally, God has given us an advantage. In studying the Bible, Asians have an advantage because the culture is similar to ours. David De Silva, in his book, Unlocking New Testament Culture, wrote this, Those living or reared in Asiatic, Latin American, Mediterranean, or Islamic countries have considerable advantage in their reading of the New Testament in this regard. Since many of those cultures place a prominent emphasis on honor and shame, readers living in the United States may recognize immediately that we live at some distance from honor and shame culture of the first century. In our culture, the bottom line for decision-making is not always what is honorable or what is shameful. we are less likely to make decisions in light of honor or shame. Not so for Asian countries and not so for the culture of the New Testament. They were hypersensitive to shame. The culture of the first century world was built on the foundational social values of honor and shame. Seneca, a first century Roman statesman and philosopher, stated this as a fact of their society. Isocrates, an Athenian orator who was Aristotle's senior, advised his young pupil that while honor with pleasure was a great good, pleasure without honor was the worst evil. Pleasure without honor was the worst evil. 
placed the value of honor, avoiding shame above one's personal safety. I think most of us, if not all of us who are Asians, have experienced this firsthand. As Korean-American growing up, I know firsthand that Korean culture is a bragging culture. It's a shame culture. right? And our parents are all about bragging about their children and being ashamed of their children. So my parents are ashamed of me, and they bragged about their friends' children, you guys, right? You guys, you know, studied hard and did well, and I was the bad kid, right? So they would come and say, oh, my friend's cousin's, you know, son got this on the SAT. So what, right? (laughs) Not a big, you know, that's not important, mom, right? They got this GPA. Well, God looks at the heart, mom, right? (laughs) Those kind of things, right? I mean, bragging culture, shame culture. Um, Asian culture, avoiding shame. And quests for honor are driving motivations. That's why in the Korean church, everybody has a title, right? First day at church, they give you a title. Because it's dishonorable for a person not to have a title behind your name. So you, you come to church, you're automatically a deacon. So everybody's a deacon, right? It's ridiculous, right? And then if you're a Christian then you're something else. I don't know what title. I have all these weird titles that they make up because they don't want to shame anyone and they want to honor people. This is a scene in families. I read read about this. There's a girl named, uh, in Troy High School, right? Todd goes to Troy and this gal lied about going to Stanford. And for eight months, uh, told her parents she got into Stanford and, you know, sent her parents like Stanford sweatshirts and so forth, and it was all a lie. And people, you know, her friends couldn't understand, why would you lie about that? And then fellow students, you know, Asian students, oh, we understand the pressure that parents put children to get into good schools. Uh, Another Asian person in UC Riverside uh, had a bomb threat for graduation because the parents were coming to see him graduate from UC Riverside. He was never in UC Riverside. So he thought if graduation ceremony was canceled, then he, his lie would not be exposed. UC Irvine medical student, right, uh, graduation. Three years ago, there was a bomb threat. They almost canceled the ceremony because another Asian guy. Right? His parents were coming. They thought he was a medical student at UC Irvine, and his lie would be exposed. And he was caught. only way out was to, uh, he actually dressed in a robe and cap and gown. And stood in line. But I don't know if there's that many students in the medical school, right? So everyone's like, who are you? I haven't seen you in four years. <laughs> they called you security and he got arrested for you know, false threats. Trying to, right? Uh, and all why? Because of the shaming, bragging culture, right? I mean, that's just replete um, in the Asian culture. Today, how much more? Much more so in the first century, in the Bible, biblical times. Um, that's why there are so many verses in the Bible about let not, me, let not me be put to shame, but shame my enemies. Um, Psalm 25, 2, Oh my God, and you my trust. Let me not be put to shame. Right. Instead, those who are wantonly treacherous, 
may they be ashamed. Psalm 6.10, all my enemies shall be ashamed. Psalm 35.26, let the enemies of God be put to shame. Psalm 71.13, my accusers be put to shame. Jeremiah 20.11, the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly ashamed. They will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. So the very worst that a Hebrew could wish for an enemy was that he might be shamed. The worst thing that you could wish for your enemy is that he might be shamed, publicly humiliated, disgraced, dishonored, made a spectacle of. And that was assurance that God has judged that person. That person was shamed in public. So here is Timothy in this shame-sensitive culture. And then secondly, an integral part of the testimony about our Lord is shameful. The heart of the gospel is full of shame, disgrace, embarrassment. Jesus was put to shame. And for all the followers of Christ, this is our shame. Because Christ calls us to carry that shame with Him, which is the cross of Christ. So, an integral part of our lives is shameful. The cross was an instrument to induce maximum pain and maximum shame on the victim. Maximum punishment and they were not content with just punishment. They wanted to maximize the shame as well. Right? I mean, that's part and parcel of how you punish people, right? By shaming them. Um, you know, early uh, puritanical times, you commit adultery, they give you a scarlet letter, letter A, to shame you in public. You stole something, they'll put you in stocks in the middle of the town. Right? They'll bind your hands and your feet and people will walk, walk around you and throw tomatoes at you, rotten fruit at you and spit at you and make fun of you. Right? To shame you for committing a crime. Um, in the German Third Reich, they would shave the beards of Jewish men knowing that Jewish men considered that a part of their faith, their dignity, their heritage to have beards, to shame them, to punish them. They would shave their beards uh, during World War II, the Allies would go forward, go through these uh, European towns, and the citizens would find the women who were cohorting with the German soldiers, and they would publicly bring them out and shave these, the hairs of these women as, as a form of punishment. Um, shame is an, a key part of punishment. The worst punishment was to shame someone by the cross. By the cross. Now, that's the integral part of our, the testimony about our Lord. You can't talk about Christ. You can't testify. You can't teach the Bible without the cross, the most shameful part. Now, in, in our 21st century, we don't understand the, the, the gravity of that, the, 
the pathos of that, but for, for, for Paul and Timothy, it was so shameful. The temptation to kind of skirt over that part was, was great. But Paul says, don't be, don't be ashamed. Uh, turn with me to John chapter 19 to kind of bring this home. John 19, 16 through 20. We studied this years ago. The fourfold shame of our Lord's crucifixion. John 19, verse 16. So he delivered him. Pontius Pilate delivered Christ over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out. He went outside the city. This is a shameful thing to be cast out of God's city. He was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. He was rejected and thrown out from God's city. Source of shame. As the writer of Hebrews 13 says, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. He was not worthy to die within Jerusalem. He was killed outside the city of Jerusalem. Therefore, let us bear, the writer of Hebrews says, bear the reproach he endured. He was rejected by the city. Let us be rejected as well. Let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach he bared. Secondly, he carried his own cross. He was forced, verse 17, bearing his own cross. The humiliation of carrying the instrument of one's own death. It was the portion of the punishment imposed only on the vilest of all criminals that they should carry their own cross as they went to their death. The soldiers took Jesus and though his back was torn by a gaping wound, by gaping wounds as a result of the scourging, they made him carry his own cross. The third shame was a public execution, public humiliation, degradation. The capital punishment in America is done in private. Few eyewitnesses allowed to see um, the death of a man for this criminal's dignity. He could be the mass murderer, a rapist, a child molester. He is still a man created in God's image. He still has some dignity to die, to die in dignity. So they preserved that by semi-private death, but not so with Christ. He was executed publicly before a major thoroughfare near Jerusalem. There they crucified him. And fourthly, verse 19, inscribed upon him, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Did it in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. That all would understand. This added to the shame and humiliation. Matthew twenty-seven forty-two. People said he saved others. He can't save himself. Mark fifteen thirty-two. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down not from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. To die on the cross was considered most disgraceful, was a degrading insult, a horrific form of capital punishment, a repugnant, demeaning form of death. 
so demeaning, so shameful that Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion unless they committed treason against the state. For the Jewish people, it was double shame, double social stigma, because they considered it divine curse. Cursed is the man who hangs in the tree. Hebrews 6.6 Crucified themselves, the Son of God, and put Him to open shame. Hebrews 12.2 Our Lord endured the cross, despising its shame. Despising its shame. Crucifixion was used, one commentator said, by the Romans to add public humiliation to the death penalty. It was such a shameful death that some contend Jesus could not have been the Son of God because God would never have allowed His Son to die such a vile death. And so, being ashamed of the testimony about our Lord from a human perspective is understandable. It's understandable. From the both Greek and Roman points of view, the stigma of crucifixion made the whole notion of the gospel an absolute absurdity. The idea that anybody who died on the cross was in any sense exceptional, elevated, noble, or honorable was, as 1 Corinthians 1, foolish, moronic, blasphemous. to the Jews especially, it could not be any more offensive. It was shame upon shame. In a culture that was hypersensitive to shame and honor, to proclaim the message of the shameful cross was unthinkable, unacceptable. Paul commanded Timothy, Paul begs Timothy, not to be ashamed. John MacArthur says this in his book, Hard to Believe. In the first century, the Apostle Paul ministered in a shame-sensitive, honor-seeking culture, shamelessly preaching a shameful message about a publicly shamed person. And so the message was offensive, it was scandalous, it was stupid, it was foolish, it was moronic. But Paul was not ashamed. Paul was not ashamed. Paul um, modeled this. What he told Timothy, he modeled. When he made that incredible statement in Romans 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul modeled and lived this out. And he calls Timothy to do the same. We'll finish this out next week, but it's, uh, there's a reason why God chose a culture hypersensitive to shame 
and designed the message of the gospel to be so filled with shame. We'll study this next week. 1 Corinthians 1. He did this to shame the wise. To shame the strong. All the wisdom of God. By using a shameful message as a message of salvation. In a shame-sensitive culture, He shames, He humbles those who are wise in their own eyes. Humbles those who are strong and righteous in their own eyes. We'll see that's the wisdom, the power, the love of God as we continue our study next week. Let's pray. So often, God, I know not what to pray after the word is spoken. How do we respond to the cross of Christ? The public shame, humiliation that you endured for the glory of the Father and our salvation. As recipients of all the benefits of the cross, we now turn power and shame? Will we hide our colors? Will we be silent about the cross that has saved our wicked and depraved souls? May it never be. And yet, Lord, far too often we struggle and give in to these temptations of shame. Lord, we pray You would enlarge our hearts. Lord, you would grant us wisdom to know who we should be loyal to, who we should love, who we should esteem, whose honor and pleasure we should seek after, and whose opinions do not matter. Lord, help us to rise above our circumstances, rise above our culture. And may we... Or by, by the cross, maybe by having a clear vision of the beauty of the cross, seek, be honored before you alone. In our church, may we honor those who live to honor you. May we affirm and praise. May our hearts go towards those who courageously, without hypocrisy, live out the Christian faith over against this world, over against this sinful and adulterous generation. May we uh, consider the shame of the cross, our honor, our boast, our, our most proudest badge. May we humbly yet boastfully carry the cross as we follow, follow after you. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.